0: Go over to the Book of Ephesians, chapter two. Last week, we began a study on the doctrine of salvation. If you want the technical word, it's soteriology. That's what the doctrine of salvation is. It's soteriology, and we're going to be in here for several weeks maybe a few months, talking about salvation, what it is, what it's not, to gain an understanding of how God saves lost people. And as I mentioned last week, you may be wondering why is that important. Well, it's important because you need to know that you know that you're saved. Not just because you attend church, not just because you've prayed a prayer, not just because you've had a religious experience, not just because you're a part of a certain denomination. You need to know that you know Jesus and that you are saved and on your way to heaven. Now there are certain people who believe that you can't have absolute certainty whether or not you're going to heaven. But First John 5.13, he says, I've written these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. Present tense, that you have it now. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes may have eternal life. Present tense, have it now. Not waiting to find out if I have it. Have it now. Aren't you glad we can have a no so salvation? Not a hope-so salvation. And so today the title of our message is, but God. But God. So look at Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 4 through verse number 10. It says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And let me just point out, if you want a homework assignment this week, read through the book of Ephesians again. And notice how many times Paul uses the words in Him or in Christ or with Him or with Christ. Because that's the foundation of our salvation. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Anything that we have, it's because we are in Him. Amen? Amen? Verse... Number seven, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. There it is again, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We've read through verse 4 through 10, but our focus this morning will be verse 4 through 7 mainly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and ask you one more time that you would anoint me and help me to say the things that you would have me to say. I pray today that you would open up the hearts of the people that they might be receptive. I pray today that you would open the ears of the people that they might hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say in this place. And God, today I pray that most of all, if there's one in this place that does not know you, that you would draw them by your Spirit, convict them of sin, and make them alive today that they might have eternal life and spend eternity with you. God, today do in this place what only you can do, and we will give you praise and glory for it. For we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and the people of God said, Amen. You could be seated this morning. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3 and we saw that we are lost without Jesus Christ. We saw what we were outside of Him. What we were before we came to know Him. We said that we were dead in trespasses and sin and could not come to God on our own. We looked at John chapter 6 verse 44 and it says, No man can come to God unless he is drawn by the Father. We said that we were disobedient and rebellious, that we were depraved and living to please the desires of the flesh, that we were under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We also saw that we were doomed and damned to hell, that we were basically messed up people outside of Jesus, amen. In summary, we were helpless and we were without hope. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 gives a good summary of our condition. Look at it on the screen. It says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. We were depraved and disobedient and dead and could not do anything to merit salvation with God. But in our passage today, Paul tells us what God has done for us that are saved. And here is the summary of the message that Paul wants to convey to us. If you want to write anything down and if you want to take away anything from this message, here's what Paul is trying to tell us today. God saves sinners because sinners cannot save themselves. That is the message of salvation. God saves sinners because sinners cannot save themselves. We could close the Bible and go home because that's the message. Amen? That's the gospel. Jesus saves. Why? Because you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. And so I want us to look at the truths in this passage this morning and it's going to show us some things about this great salvation that we enjoy. Number one, God and nothing else is the cause of our salvation. God and nothing else is the cause of our salvation. Because of our past spiritual condition, we had no hope. But Paul starts verse 4 by saying, but God. Those are the greatest words of hope that we could ever want to hear. You see, death robs us of hope. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know what it's like to be robbed of hope. And can I just say to us to be spiritually dead is to be without hope unless you bring God into the equation. That when you were dead and trespasses and sin, when you were lost and depraved and living in rebellion and on your way to hell, you were hopeless and you were without help. But when you bring God into the equation, there is hope for the hopeless. There is hope for the sinner when God shows up on the scene. Amen. You see, God told Adam in the Garden of Eden, when you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And here's the thing, he didn't die physically immediately, but immediately spiritual death came into the world. And when he ate of that fruit, all of humanity was plunged into spiritual death. And here's the thing, those who are spiritually dead have no capacity to seek God based on Romans three ten through 18. They can't understand spiritual truth according to 1 Corinthians 2, 14 or to believe in the gospel based on 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The Bible says that Satan has blinded their minds that they cannot understand the truth. In fact, the Bible says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. That's where we were without Jesus had no hope without God. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. Anything that has to do with God or Jesus whatsoever, before you met Jesus, it sounded like pure nonsense. It was foolish. That's the Bible. But I, but I, I know what some people think. Well, well, preacher, I grew up in church my whole life. It made sense to me. No, it didn't. Without the Spirit of God inside of you, it didn't make sense to you. And you can't refute me because that's what the Bible says. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. You can't refute me saying you understood it. Because the natural man can't understand the things of God. We okay? I know we might not shout today on some of these things. But let me say this, if you'll get a hold of what I'm trying to say, you'll want to shout. Lost people do not want anything to do with God. They are dead, and that's where all of us were without God. Dead in sin. But God intervened. God stepped in. Let me just say this. I'm glad God butted into my life. Amen? Aren't you thankful God butted in? When you were on your way to hell, when you were out there in sin going headlong to hell, God butted in. Aren't you glad He butted in? I'm glad He found me. I I know sometimes we sing songs that talk about we found God and we chose Him. No, He found me. I was on my way to hell, but He butted in. Amen? You see, what man couldn't do, God did. When man couldn't save himself, God stepped in. You see, when you bring God into the equation, there is hope for the worst of sinners. I don't care what anybody has done. I don't care where they may be. I don't care what kind of lifestyle they may be living. I don't care how vile or wicked they may be. When you bring God into the equation, there is hope for the chief and worst of sinners. Why? Because God is in the business of saving lost people. Listen, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and bring yourself out of sin. Only God can save. And I want to clarify something about salvation. There are many evangelicals today that view salvation as a joint project between God and men. Somehow people see this as some kind of cooperation between God and man. God does His part and i got to do my part. They see salvation as God has done all that He can to, all He can do, but the rest is up to the free will of the sinner. They don't view the sinner as dead, but rather as sick or wounded. You see, like a drowning man, there's still life in him. He can grab the rope if we throw it to him, but if he refuses to cooperate, even God can't save him. Hear me well. That is an unbiblical view of salvation. Here's the biblical view of salvation summed up in a short sentence. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Here's what the angel told Joseph concerning Jesus in Matthew 1.21. He will save his people from their sins. Who does the saving? Jesus. Why? I know I'm going to reiterate this over and over again, but who does the saving? Jesus. Why? because you can't save yourself and I wish we could just get that because we have this idea I've got to do something what are the steps of salvation there are no steps believe in Jesus put your faith in Jesus that's it he saves that's it not complicated God didn't say he'll do all that he can but he's limited by the sinner's stubborn will let me just say something too and we'll get into this more in in weeks to come here's the thing you would have never come to him if God had, had, had not come to you And we'll get into this more over the weeks as we talk about election, predestination, and, and, and free will and all that kind of stuff. Because that's one of the things that people want to bring up. Well, I, I've got free will. I can do what I want to do. Well, here's the thing. If you was left up totally doing to free will, you'd have never come to God. You'd have never come to God. Because there's no one righteous and none that seek Him. We all go astray, the Bible tells us. So God has to do something. In fact, in John 6 that talks about that no man can come unless the Father draws him. Other places in Scripture that were drawn, other places it's translated dragged. That doesn't mean you come kicking and screaming. But your unwillingness to come He works in your heart in such a way that your unwillingness becomes willingness. And here's the thing, that doesn't override your freedom. You just become willing. Doesn't mean we become robots, but you want to. Right? You want to. And I know this bothers some of you. That's Bible. Bible. I serve Him because I want to, not because He's making me. He's done something in me to where I want to. Can I just say something to you this morning? God's not frustrated in heaven wishing that He could do more. The hope of the Gospel is God saves sinners. We were dead, but God made us alive. Those two words, but God tells us, who initiates salvation. God always makes the first place. Yes, we have a responsibility to, to believe, and that's what some of you are thinking. Well, Pastor, I've got a responsibility to believe. I've got a responsibility to have faith. But guess what? Even your ability to believe doesn't come from you. God has to give, grant faith. How can a dead person have faith? You can't. Unless God gives you life and gives you faith. So God and nothing else is the cause of our salvation. But here's what I want you to see secondly. God saved us out of His rich mercy and love. You see, many wrongly think that in the Old Testament, God is a stern God of judgment and wrath, but in the New Testament, He turned into a tolerant God of love. Can I tell you that's false? God has always been a God of compassion and mercy. Always. Always. Listen to these scriptures, Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Deuteronomy four, thirty-one. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God's always been compassionate. He's always been loving. He's always been merciful. Think about Jonah, the disobedient prophet. He tries to explain to God why he didn't go to Nineveh the first time God asked him. Here's what he said Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore in order to forestall this I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. In other words, he knew that it would be just like God to forgive the evil people of Nineveh, but Jonah wanted them to get zapped. The reason he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites because he knew God was merciful and compassionate, and if they repented, God would be merciful and forgiving, and so he didn't want to go preach. Because he says, God, I know what you'll do if I go preach to them. You'll forgive them. And God, I don't want you to forgive them. Maybe that's why we don't share the gospel with some people we know. (laughs) Because we know God's merciful. Maybe we want some people to go to hell. I'm just saying. I'll just say this. If you won't share the gospel with them and God wants them to go to heaven, He'll send somebody else to share the gospel with them. Amen. Amen. The fame of God's compassion and mercy runs throughout the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Instead of berating sinners and blasting them to oblivion, God delights to show mercy when they repent. Notice that Paul says God is rich in mercy. That word rich, it refers to an overabundance that which is without measure, it's unlimited. Think about that, an abundance of mercy. That's why Jeremiah, I believe it says that his mercies are new every morning. Never runs out. This characteristic of mercy suggests that God possesses an overabundant, measureless, and unlimited quantity of mercy. The word mercy refers to goodness or kindness toward the miserable and afflicted, coupled with a desire to help them. You'll notice often in the Gospels that Jesus pitied people and had compassion on people, and he was moved to help. That's what it means. You see, in spite of our sinfulness and rebellion, God saved us because of His mercy. He didn't give us what we deserve. You see, we were deserving of His wrath, but in His mercy, He turned His wrath away. But here's the thing. If God's rich mercy weren't enough, Paul also speaks of God's great love. And there there in verse 4. You see, when we were unlovable, God loved us. When we didn't love Him... He loved us and He saved us because of His great love. He's rich in mercy, but He's great in love and He saved us. Listen to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates, He proves, He shows His own love toward us. Notice this. In that while we were yet sinners. While we were sinners, He showed His love. In that Christ died for us. And then it reaches a great crescendo in Romans chapter 8, very familiar verses, verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rich in mercy and great in love. And that's why we're saved. Not because we were lovable, but because He loved us. In fact, First John chapter 4, around verse 18 or 19, somewhere along there, says we love Him because He first loved us. It's His love that makes you valuable. Amen? Let me ask you this morning, is this your view of God towards you that He's rich in mercy and great in love? That's how you need to see God, that He's rich in mercy and great in love. Before you met Jesus, you were His enemy, but His great love as shown at the cross rescued you from His wrath and made you His child. We were undeserving, but mercy walked in. And love showed up. Amen? I'm thankful for mercy and love. Let me give you a third thing this morning. God saved us through His resurrection power and grace. Look at verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Paul says, God made us alive with Christ even though we were dead. Now let me just ask you a quick question before we go any further. Who made us alive? God made us alive, didn't He? When did He make us alive? When we were dead in sin. See, Paul tells us God makes us alive with Christ. You see, when God saves a lost person, He brings them out of spiritual death and imparts to them the very resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ, based on Colossians 1.13. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet he will live. He's the resurrection and life. And when you believe in Him, you come out of death into life. Immediately, a person is born again. They become a new creature. They come from spiritual death, spiritual deception, spiritual depravity, and spiritual doom. A person that's born again, they're given new life, and they're given life abundantly. Notice also that Paul interjects parenthetically, by grace you have been saved. That word grace means that we didn't deserve it. We deserve God's wrath because of our sins, but He saved us by His unmerited favor. We were walking corpses living for the lust of the flesh, but He made us alive together with Christ. Hear me well. We are saved by grace, not by our goodness or good deeds. We'll talk about this more next week as we get into verses 8 and 9 especially. But we're saved by grace. That's what He says. And what the text says, You have been saved by grace. Our rescue from spiritual death is God's work, not based on anything that we had done or anything we could do or would do. By grace, you have been saved. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. It's by grace you have been saved. Now let's read verse 8 and 9 again and we'll, we'll pick these up next week as we study more. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Very plain, salvation is not of yourself. Isn't that what it says? It is the gift of God. What you do with a gift? You receive it. You don't earn a gift. You receive it. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Anyone who is saved, anyone who goes to heaven, gets there by Grace, not works. Does that mean that how we live doesn't matter? That's not what I'm saying. Am I saying that we shouldn't bear fruit? That's not what I'm saying, because John fifteen says, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. Fruit should be a natural part of being saved. But here's but but here, here's the thing about people who want to bring up good works all the time. If you aren't careful, you'll trust in your good works rather than trusting in the good Savior. Let me say that again. If you aren't careful, if you're constantly talking about what you do, that might be what you're trusting in rather than what Jesus did. Because Isaiah tells us, our righteousness is as filthy as that's what God sees when He sees our goodness and our righteousness. It's like a filter act, but in Christ, He sees Christ's perfection. you well, you know what it takes to get to heaven—perfection. And if we were dead in sin before we met Jesus, we weren't perfect. And if we be honest, even in Christ, I don't think any hands are going to go up and say that we've been perfect now that we've come to meet Christ. But I can tell you this, now that I'm in Christ and God looks at me, He sees perfection, even though in this body I'm not perfect. But sanctification is happening in this body. Where daily I'm living and getting better. But one day this body will take on glorification where this body will be perfect. Where the inner man and this body will be glorified and it will be perfect. that makes sense to you? Because you've got to understand, as you've heard me say before, what got saved is that spirit part of you. We're body, soul, and spirit. And what got redeemed was the spirit part of you and it does not sin. Let me try to explain it this way. you you got... There's an old you, and if you're saved, there's a new you. The new you always wants to do right. The old you wants to do wrong. The new you will never see it. And when God looks at you, guess what God God sees the new you. But the devil's going to try to keep influencing this old you to keep you sinning. Why? Because you live in this body. This body had not gone home yet. This new you, you're born again. Become a partaker of the divine nature. Sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. Always wants to do right. And it's going to try to influence this. It's going to try to always lead you to do right. But that old nature is going to try to oppose this new nature. And that's why Paul said, If you'll walk in the Spirit, you won't give in to this. But you got a choice. Follow this or follow this. Here's the thing you're a child of God. But you can be an obedient child and live according to this, or a disobedient child and give in to this. Is it making sense to you? But God says this. Why? Because it's in Christ. But when you get into this, guess what? Discipline and chastening coming. Consequences are coming when you get over here into this. You might get to heaven because of this over here, but you don't get no rewards. Does that help you see things a little bit better? Saved. God's trying to sanct- God's through his spirit sanctifying us in this life but we're sealed unto the day of redemption because in God's eyes it's a done deal I don't want to get too far ahead of myself those are, those are things we'll deal with in the weeks to come but here's the thing when we stand before God we won't boast in anything that we've done to get there I I want that to be perfectly clear. If he says, "Why should I let you into heaven?" If you say anything other than Jesus, that's the wrong answer. If it's I went to church and I I gave money and I I evangelized, that's the wrong answer. It's Jesus. Amen. It's Jesus. God will be the only one who gets credit and honor and glory for salvation. It's going to be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty when we get to heaven. We're not going to sing the praises of each other when we get to heaven. I'm not going to sing praise to myself about what I did to get there. Again, this idea that we've got to cooperate with God. I'll just say this. Who do you want in the driver's seat of your life? This, 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 this idea that God is my co-pilot, you better get rid of that nonsense and let Him be the pilot. You better let Him drive the ship. You better let Him fly, fly the airplane. Because if it's left up to you, you're going to mess it up. Listen, if, listen if, it, if it falls on me, and i got to keep it, and i got to do this, and dot all the I's and cross all the T's, I might as well walk out of here today and throw up my hands and give up. Because I, I, I'll just go to hell. Because I can't do it. I need Him. You need Him. We didn't deserve it. But he raises us to life. Notice Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Have been saved. It refers to a past event accomplished by Christ with present and ongoing results. Believers have already passed from death to life. Listen to me. Salvation isn't something we're waiting for, but something that's already been delivered. I'm not waiting to be saved. I have been saved. It's done. You see, as saved people, we've been resurrected and possess eternal life now. Not something I'm waiting for in the future. It's mine now. That's why I look at verse 6. Paul says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Paul speaks of being raised up with Christ, it doesn't refer to His resurrection with the dead, but rather to His ascension. In other words, when Christ ascended into heaven, took His place at the right hand of the Father, we are there in Him. Although we still live in this earth, we are citizens of heaven. Think about that. I live down here, but my citizenship is already there. Mind-boggling isn't it. See, that's part of the reason I believe that I'm safe in Him. He going to take my name off the citizenship of heaven and then put it back on, take it off, and put it back on. In Christ, I'm already seated in heavenly places. Now, before I move on to the next point, and I want to try to move through this quickly. The next point won't take that long. I want to say this. I can't make you believe what I've shared with you this far. But I will tell you that it will change your outlook on life, if you will. I I can't explain it really well. And I may have not explained it that well so far. But everything I've said so far goes back to those two words, but God. Verse 5 clearly says, by grace you have been saved. I'll say this to every one of us in this room. None of us got here by ourselves. You didn't get this far in life. You haven't come this far in your journey of faith by yourself. Our salvation rests completely in the grace of God. We were dead, couldn't get to Him, but He came to us. We didn't love Him, but He loved us. We didn't want Him, but for some reason He wanted us. It is His amazing grace that reached down into the depths of our dead, depraved, and doomed condition. It was His grace that saved us, changed us, and identified us with Christ Jesus. We can't pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves on making a good decision. We can't look at ourselves and say, God saw some good in me and saved me. There was nothing good in us. That's what I want us to understand. There was nothing good in us. And God saved us. And let me say it again, for you to somehow sit here and arrogantly think you've got this far by yourself, tramples on the grace of God. We've got to be like the Apostle Paul and humbly say these words, by the grace of God I am what I am. It's by His grace that we are what we are. And that we've come this far in life. Here's my final point. God saved us for a purpose. God saved us for a purpose. And we see part of our purpose of salvation in verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This verse indicates that God will use the unfolding ages of eternity to reveal the extent of his grace in our lives. In other words, this life is not enough to understand just how much grace God's given us. You see, the reality is right now, we don't truly have a concept of what God's done for us. That's why we come to church sometimes and don't really worship. Because we don't really know what God's done for us. But when we get to heaven, it's all going to be unfolded. And you'll see just what God's did for, done for you. God's going to be able to show us and we're going to be able to understand and comprehend the extent of His grace. When we get to heaven, we'll be able to understand the wonder of His love, the price of His grace, and the power of His salvation. You see, God's ultimate purpose in our salvation is that for all eternity we might glorify His grace. That's it. But let me just say this. We shouldn't wait till we get to heaven to glorify His grace. We ought to start glorifying Him now for what He's done. But can I tell you, when we get to heaven, we'll do it Perfectly. One commentator said this about this verse. He said, God has done so much for us through Christ Jesus that it will take an eternity to show it all off. That about made me want to run right there. Let me read it one more time. God has done so much for us through Christ Jesus that it will take an eternity to show it all off. Think about that. It's going to take forever and ever to show everything off that God's done for you when He rescued you from spiritual death. You think God's been good to you now? You haven't seen anything yet. And it's going to take all of eternity to show what God's done. Wow. God's purpose in saving us is for His glory and His glory alone. That's why verse 9 said, so that no one can boast. Because our boasting is in I close this morning. We were dead in our sins, but God. We were rebels against Him, but God. We were enslaved by Satan and our sinful natures, but God. These are the two of the greatest words in all of Scripture, but God. God could have left us spiritually dead in rebellion against Him and in bondage to our sins, but He didn't. He didn't save us because of, but rather in spite of what He saw in us. So today, if you've ever had a but God moment in your life, you ought to praise Him and thank Him for His grace. You ought to worship Him and magnify Him for what He's done in your life. If you were ever on your way to hell and God intervened, you should worship Him from now and through eternity. Would you stand with me?